Welcome to our podcast called Versed with Scott Tittle, a Viam Capital podcast, where we will be interviewing leaders in the long-term care sector who are shaping the future of the profession. We'll be discussing issues top of mind to them so our listeners can be even more well-versed as they tackle their day. This podcast is powered by Viam Capital, a new national financial services firm focused exclusively on providing capital solutions to the seniors' housing and healthcare sectors. For more information, you can find us at viamcapital.com. I'm your host, Scott Siddle. This is Versed. Well, good morning, everybody. I'd like to welcome this version of our Versed podcast, Tom Coble, who's president and CEO of Elmbrook Management Company out of Oklahoma and a longtime friend. Tom, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Scott. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. Hey, we could talk about all kinds of things today, um, but I know we've got two topics top of mind. One, of course, is this theme that we're using on our Versed podcast all year on value-based care, and you are just the country's expert in this topic, so I'm really excited for our listeners to hear you and hear your story. And the second's a really, unfortunately, timely topic, which is the CMS SNF minimum staffing ratio rule. I know you've got some thought, strong thoughts about that, and some data came out even yesterday from HCA we can talk about. So I'd love to cover those two topics today in quick order, just so our followers have a really good sense of who you are, the impact you've had on the industry, and where you see things going. Hey, before we get started on a personal note, I just got to thank you, Tom. You may or may not remember this, but when I first got started in this business back in 2010 and was the new president of the Indiana Healthcare Association, I think you were the first person to call me to welcome me to the role and welcome me to the family of the association world other than folks I knew in Indiana. So I've always remembered that, Tom, about you and really want to thank you for reaching out and you really made me feel welcome and been a huge help to me in my career. So it's an honor to have you on the podcast today. Let's talk a little bit about your background because I think for our listeners, You've got a very unique background that's a little unusual than most leaders in our sector. So maybe tell our listeners a little about your background and the industry you came from before long-term care and then how you got into long-term care. 1993, March 1st, actually, 1993, I came into the long-term care industry as a business office manager, soon-to-be administrator, owner of a 126-bed skilled facility here in Ardmore. Prior to that, I'd worked in the in the oil and gas industry for my entire career up to that point. My last job that I had was uh, coordinating the production and delivery of offshore natural gas and onshore natural gas for Noble Energy. I came into this industry having never worked a day in healthcare in my life. And the way that that occurred was I tell people, and it's the truth, uh, they asked me, how did you get in here? And it's, well, eight years of negotiations in a duck blind. <laughs> and uh, I, I duck hunted with a, with a gentleman who at that time ran a single facility here in Ardmore. His dad had been in the business and uh, he had been on me for a while. His dad was going to be retiring and selling out to buy this facility from his father and uh, uh, get in the business. So uh, we took that opportunity and I guess the rest is history, as they say. What an interesting background. I guess real quick, any similarities between the oil and gas industry and long-term care? There is, I think, in, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, what happened with natural gas back in the late 80s, early 90s, degraded both offshore and onshore natural gas pipelines. You could deliver gas, you could sell gas and transport it, but if you did so outside a certain margin, you were penalized. So there was risk now involved in how much you delivered and how much you sold and how much you produced. So that, in fact, I think in a lot of ways helped me maybe understand earlier than a lot of people the opportunity there was uh, with iSNPs and other things. So let's get into your experience. You know, way back in 2005, you were the very first person in the country to create a provider-owned iSNP. Tell us a little about your iSNP today 
uh, its growth over years and then how many lives you cover and what states you're in? When I started at Elmbrook in 93, that the facility was only Medicaid and private pay. It was not Medicare certified. After having got started and started reading about the industry and coming up to speed, it became very apparent that we needed to get Medicare certified as soon as we can. We took those steps and on January 1st of 1994, we took our first Medicare patient at Elmbrook. And once our, you know, our, our nurses were IB certified, we had a couple of uh, RNs that were PICC line certified. I mean, we did EKGs over the telephone, which is seems like caveman stuff now. But at the at the time, you start to see these skills that we have. You start watching the residents that you have get sick and go to the hospital. It kind of opened my eyes up to the fact that I thought that we could have, if the system would have allowed, that we could uh, take care of a lot of our residents in the facility rather than having to send them to the hospital. Watch that happen, the more I became convinced that it would be a really good model to use. 1996 and 1997, we took all of our hospital admissions at Elmbrook and uh, for, for the previous year, SNF consultant nurse that we used and our medical director look at them. The determination was that we could have reduced uh, our hospitalizations by over 70% if we could have taken care of them in-house. We redid that study in 99 for the year, for 1998. We did it across all of our facilities and it, it came out almost identical. Again, it was over 70% that we could reduce those hospitalizations. That really started me on the hunt then to try to find a model in a place to put this into. Medicare Plus Choice became known as Medicare Advantage and created a spot where we then could apply for a license, which we did. And we went live on August 1st, 2005. What a great story and background there and, and early insight in the industry. Boy, 70% reduced rehospitalization. That's an incredible data point. Wh where are you today now, Tom, looking back these last uh, you know couple of decades? Uh, tell us about your ISNIP today and how many lives you cover, what states you're in, and data points that you, looking back, realize you really moved the needle, especially with your residents. I think we'll be in 15 states by the first of uh, next year. I started making presentations uh, at HCA around 2008, trying to get other people interested in this. And uh, it took a long time to, to get them there. It's still not as easy as you think it is. The early adopters are, are now all in the door. It's trying to, to bring other people along that haven't thought about how this works because it's not easy and uh, because you have to become an insurance company first. Then you apply for, to become a Medicare Advantage company and then to go forward. And that requires a lot of expertise that I never, I've had to run an insurance company for a couple of years during this process. And we are currently in um, Oklahoma, Kansas, I'll probably forget some of these, Missouri, Texas, uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, uh, Tennessee, Georgia, soon to be Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, and Florida. So uh, we're growing along. We've got about 7,000 members collectively in our plans. And so it's uh, our results have been really good. I think I saw a number in the 
a meeting yesterday that 2018, we paid out over $15 million in shared savings to our provider partners. We basically use the same model of care. It's refined every year. We're moving the needle and that's what we want to do. We had an interesting conversation with your colleague, Steve Fogg, a couple months ago out of uh, Oregon. And I know you worked very hard to create the Provider uh, Population Health Management Council through HCA through all your work over the years. Exciting about that council certainly is to spread the good news to operators who are uh, thinking about going down the path and, and that already have and support them. The benefit is there for the provider and for the most importantly, the residents. In many cases, it's work that they're already doing in-house. They should be getting the benefit both internally, financially, but also and be able to return those funds back into the, the uh, quality of care services provided inside the building, uh, but also uh, demonstrate higher quality outcomes for residents. Tell us a little bit about the, the Population Health Management Council and some of its work to date. The Population Health Management Council was created to really help educate HCA membership on different value-based care models and particularly the ISNIP. When anything comes out, there's a lot of people drawn to, to new products and along the lines. And we just wanted our membership to understand what to look out for, what the important things were when they started to look at these different models. And uh, those models range from contract only models to uh, full, you can invest and be a, an invested partner in some of these plans. But you need to, it's buyer beware, and you for sure need to do your due diligence to make sure that uh, you're, you're really getting to a plan that empowers you to do exactly what you just said, Scott, to take what you're already doing to give you the flexibility to provide care to your residents. And as a result of that flexibility and improved quality, there are any savings, you're, you're allowed to share in those so that you can be rewarded for the high quality of care or higher quality of care that you're delivering. It sounds like, you know, this Population Health Management Council is a, a perfect vehicle for anybody that's new to market for the ISNIP world and or thinking about going the, down the path. I know there are a lot of resources at HCA. There's a whole team available to folks to, to help walk them down the path. You mentioned one potential hurdle or difficult step, which is certainly creating an insurance company. My background as a lawyer, I actually started in the insurance business and, and represented some insurance companies here in Indiana. I know how difficult that, that industry is. Outside of that step, what, what are some other lessons learned or some advice you'd give someone who's thinking about creating a provider on ISNIP to be wary of or think about in advance? So we file, you can, if you're wondering about how a providers, a certain uh, insurance company or ISNIP is performing, we file quarterly reports every quarter and then an annual report with NIC. So those reports are out there. You can go look at them and talk to the providers that are involved in their networks and that uh, work with them. You know how this business is. Everybody knows everybody. So pull them aside. We've got our annual convention coming up next week in Denver and say, hey, I was thinking about doing this. What do you know about it? And also there's a breakout session uh, we've got a population health management track for the first time. There's a lot of different information there to to do that. The other thing that ACA is doing, they're building provider networks within state associations. So that's another good place for everybody to get involved. If you're a small operator, you may not feel like there's a, a place for you, but there is. Using the state networks as a way to contract with a plan is another way to go about doing this and 
to do it because everybody, there's room for everybody at the table in this world of value-based care. So you just have to get plugged in the, the place that you feel the most comfortable. That last point, Tom, is really important. I want to make sure our listeners um, understand it's a big tent. There's a lot of interesting work being done in the big definition of value-based care. There are a lot of different models. They're available to large multi-state sniff operators, smaller sniff operators like yourself. There are different collaborations that are done up and through a state trade association or independently. So I think that's the hope The hope I'd like to make sure our listeners take away this, this year through our whole series is that there's an opportunity for everyone to participate in, in a right way, in a productive way through this big definition of value-based care. And there are a lot of resources out there to help you get started. Was talking to leaders like you and Steve Fogg directly, coming to the American Healthcare Association, National Center for Assisted Living Annual Conference next week in Denver, uh, reaching out to NISHA at HCA. I know there's a standing Population Health Management Council meeting, a lot of resources available for everybody. Hey, what, one last question about value-based care. Well, Tom, you've, you've spent several decades in this world already. Where do you see things going the next 10 or 15 years in terms of growth and opportunity? It's just going to continue to grow and it's going to continue to accelerate. CMS has said they want everybody moved out of fee-for-service by 2030. That's a stretch, but, you know, who knows what they'll come up with uh, between now and 2030. I can't hardly see how we can get it done by then, but I just think they're going to continue to force the the issue to the point that uh, it's, it's really going to accelerate going forward. There's a big opportunity for for SNF operators and the fact that as they start to push uh, the people who live in the community into managed care, ICE, you know, we have ISNFs that are for institutionalized, but the ISNF is for an institutionalized equivalent. And a lot, of, a lot of those institutional equivalents we're already taken care of on our skilled units when they get sick and they come through for a stay before they go home. So that's going to create a whole new marketplace for delivering care, whether it's in the facility or not. So depending on the, the scale or, or that your appetite as an operator for doing that, it's going to open up the world of being able to deliver care in the community. The whole world's going there. CMS has to do something. I can remember when I started, I think Medic working on this, Medicare penetration was like 3%. It's in the upper 40s, maybe over 50% by now, depending on what state and in some states, it's up to 70 and 80 percent. If you're going to be in this business, you need to embrace it and you need to go ahead and get involved. And uh, because, you know, I think a lot of operators think, well, no harm, no foul yet, because it's not really affecting me. But it's not all about a cap fee and it's not all about a uh, per diem or whatever you get. So it's uh, you need to really start thinking about a long-term care strategy if you haven't already done it. You know, I'm going to quote uh, Bob Kramer, who uh, you know founded Nick and was a long-time leader there. I heard him at a conference once saying, if you continue to swim in the sea of sameness, you're going to sink. And I, <laughs> I think that's, you know, all that alliteration, I was able to get that out without starting through it. But I always remember that. And I think about this is a market, an industry, and a sector that is constantly under change, but has a great opportunity for innovation um, and I think this value-based care world is a perfect vehicle to think about how to improve process, capture savings, and improve quality of care. And everybody wins. I want to encourage our listeners, if you have questions, I know Tom's available. He's been talking to a lot of people over the years. This is kind of an all-boats-rise experience. I know Mark Parkinson, we had on, on the podcast last year, 
talked about how providers really need to think about controlling their own destiny in the future. And this is right in front of everybody. So again, I want to encourage you if you're, no matter what size operator you are, there's a way you can participate in a value-based care program in your community. So Tom, I'd like to spend the last few minutes of our time together talking about a very concerning topic, which is the Biden administration CMS uh, SNF minimum staffing ratio rule. I know you've been studying this really closely. I know now, by now, HCA has put out information on a per building experience of what it would cost to uh, comply with the rule as is. They just put out a new study yesterday from Clifton Larson Allen, giving some updated data on what it, what it, the impact of the, of the rule as is for the sector. It would require, CLA indicates over 100,000 new staff will need to be hired, about 80,000 nurse aides, about 20,000 nurses. Cost per per year to the sector, uh, almost $7 billion, about $6.8 billion a year. That's higher the, than the uh, Biden administration's uh, estimate of four, four and a half. About 94% of SNFs currently would not comply with one of the three new staffing ratio requirements. And maybe the most concerning thing is about 280,000 current residents would be impacted somehow. People don't realize, you know, this this is a huge industry, but there, there are about a million nursing home beds in the country. So if we're talking about almost 30% of residents would be impacted by this rule as is, that's, that's a real concern. Um, so I've said a lot there, Tom, maybe say a little bit about you know, you may have had some time to look at your own portfolio. What what could this mean for your facilities that you you manage? Scott, the the staff's not there. I mean, I don't know. Even before they published this rule, study that they commissioned showed that it wouldn't work. The staff wasn't there. They couldn't do it. And the fact that they want to go ahead and do it with ghost uh, RNs and LPNs that don't exist, and the fact that uh, they want us to pay for it out of a already underfunded program, basically Medicaid, and they have no way and they have no power to over the states to force the states to to uh, increase our rates to to bear it. I, I don't know what they're thinking. I mean, our rural buildings would be just if we had to close them. Where do the residents go? We just closed in June uh, a rural building that we'd been. Is the only building we didn't own. We had been operating that building for 25 years and we could not hire in that county. So we just had to close it. And that's what's going to happen. There will not be a place for those residents to go. You know, they're going to have to move. They're going to have their families going to have to drive an hour or two one way to go see them and check on them. When it comes time, which is coming ahead, that we all need to have our staff and our families write and tell CMS how this is going to affect them. HCA is working on getting that campaign set up. I don't think it's quite ready yet, but uh, uh, we all need to actively participate and try to, to get the comments in because like you said, it's going to affect a lot of a lot of family members, not only family members, the facilities and the current staff that's there, but it, it's just going to be a disaster. Real concerns and fears from a lot of operators, especially those in, in rural America. One of the most concerning components of the rule, of course, is that 24-7 nurse requirement. The nurses just aren't there to be hired right now. And even if they were, they make it sound like there's a long glide path to, to comply with this rule. But the shortest time frame would be for uh, urban SNFs to comply with that 24-7 nurse requirement. And that's only two years. And the definition they're using the rule is the U.S. Census Bureau rule. And by that definition, about 80% of the nursing homes in the country would be considered urban, even yeah. though we know that they operate mostly in rural markets and, and outside of urban areas. So that's a real, real concern. 
And I think yeah, the other point, certainly, Tom, is, you know, an access to care issue. I mean, we, oh. we, have, we have a demographic uh, wave coming through where the boomers are going to hit their low 80s in 2025. We don't need less options for seniors. We need our quality. Uh, we need quality options that are available in local marketplaces. And so I think that's that's the real concern here as well. Tom said that there, the comment period is open. HCA is, if you go to the American Healthcare Association's webpage, there is an easy button to click at the top of the webpage to provide comments. Here at Vime Capital, we put out a Vime voice alert to all of our clients with that link so that everybody can participate. Also, certainly want to stress, Tom, you, you mentioned you've got assisted living in your portfolio. All healthcare providers, regardless of the, of the continuum of, of care uh, placement, should be concerned about this rule. And that's why the American Hospital Association has come out against it. I know home health and assisted living is concerned because the staff is, is, is going to come from somewhere and everybody should be concerned. Well, Tom, I, I really want to thank you for your time today. Before we go, I've got two quick questions. We, we started off talking about your, your interesting career before long-term care. You, you now are part of a family business. Your son, Brett, is in the business too. Is that right? And you, you all worked together for a while and he's now doing his own. Th- Tell us a little bit about Brett's career. His mom and I are so proud of him. He, uh, he worked for us up until two or three years ago, and and uh, a gentleman who uh, recruited him to run his company here in Oklahoma, Bridges Healthcare. And uh, so Brett's the CEO of Bridges. You know, I've always wanted him to work for somebody else and uh, just to get a different flavor. He's done a fantastic job at Bridges, and we, we could not be prouder of him. I love hearing people's stories about this business, not only how they get into it, but then also passing on the mission that this industry is and that, you know, that, uh, you know, people's uh, children are coming up through the business because they see how important it is, how valuable it is to take care of others. So I know Brett well, he's a tremendous guy and maybe we'll have him on the podcast in future too. So thanks for sharing that. Hey, one more question I ask all of our guests. Is there, is there a a, a book you like to, you're reading right now or a book you like to recommend to kind of ask what's on your nightstand now and anything you want to recommend to our listeners? I'm reading a, a book about Lloyd Noble. He he was born and raised here in Ardmore, and uh, and I worked for Noble Energy for 13, 14 years before I came to work here. Rereading this book again at this time, just because the most important asset of any uh, company are the employees, and this just kind of regrounds me when I do this to to remember that, and particularly at a time right now where staffing's like it is. To be able to, what kind of leader I need to be, but also the example our company needs to, to set and taking care of our employees who are part of our family. That's what I'm reading right now, and uh, I'd recommend this book to anyone. I mean, he he was quite a guy. Thanks for that recommendation, Tom. I, again, I always love understanding what what true leaders also are inspired by and, and are reading on on the side. So thanks for sharing that story. Yeah, Tom, it's been a real pleasure to have you on today. Again, it's been an honor to have you on. Uh, I know our listeners can now see why I want to make sure we had you on to talk about this very important topic of value-based care this year. I look forward to seeing you in Denver next week at the American Healthcare Association Annual Convention, and then also hope to see you later uh, this year sometime in Oklahoma or out in D.C. Again, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the Verse of uh, Vime Capital Podcast. Uh, be sure to check back in for our future sessions when we are uh, talking to other leaders in our profession that are shaping our sector during these very interesting times. This is Verse.